Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 2 for this morning. Matthew chapter 2, page 957 if you're using a pew Bible. This is Matthew's account here in chapter 2, beginning part of the chapter of the reaction of world leaders to the birth of the king of Israel. And so what Matthew does for us is give us a snapshot, a, a representative snapshot of how three different groups of leaders respond to the birth of the king, birth of the Messiah. And in these three different responses, we find something that's most revealing. Actually, what we find is a penetrating evaluation of our own hearts in terms of how do we respond to Christ. We can find ourselves here in this narrative and the response of one of these three groups. Last week, we looked at just the beginning portion with regard to the Magi. We saw that the Magi came to worship. They came a great distance, a thousand miles or so. This ancient priestly caste of kingmakers who traveled across the ancient trade routes of the Near East at great difficulty and great expense. They traveled to Jerusalem looking for him who had been born king of the Jews. They brought gifts befitting a king. And when they finally located the child, they came and and knelt before him and worshipped him, it says, and offered him these gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. These ones came to pay homage to him who was born king. Well, this morning we'll find two other responses. That is a response of hostility and a response of indifference. Somewhere in these three, homage, hostility, and indifference, we find ourselves. So this morning, as we look at the text together, I want to look at these other two reactions, the reaction of hostility and the reaction of indifference. In the process, may the Spirit of God use His Word to penetrate and examine our own hearts and reveal just who we are and what our response is. Now, before we dig in here to the text, it's appropriate to lay some background. The writers of the New Testament, let me just kind of say this almost as an aside, the writers of the New Testament assume a basic understanding of the Old Testament. They assume we have read it. They assume we are familiar with the storyline, as it were. They assume we know the history of the people of Israel. It's kind of basic. The problem is that for many of us, our understanding of the Old Testament is rather shallow, rather truncated. And so we arrive here at Matthew's Gospel, the very first book of the New Testament, and it it opens before us, as we noted a few weeks ago, with a genealogy. 
That immediately kind of rolls us back on our heels. We're not used to such things. And then it proceeds here into chapter 2, introducing the response of various officials of the nation of Israel and without a, a working knowledge of the Old Testament and what's called the intertestamental period, that is the four centuries that pass between the closing of the Old Testament and the opening of the New, we're a little bit lost. The text is not that it cannot be understood, but it's only understood at a superficial level. And so we need to dig in. We need to plow that ground. We need to, to do the hard work that God would expect of us in order that we might glean the most possible from the New Testament. So what I would like to do here, just as a little bit of background, is to lay down some events, a little history. Now, I say history, and many of you, your eyes glaze over, but not for me, because I love history. It's so sequential. <laughs> First this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens. No, actually, it's essential. It is essential to have a basic understanding of history. You know, as I've grown older, I've noted that when I go home to visit my parents, that we spend more and more time talking about family history, about grandparents and great-grandparents and, and uncles and cousins. And how does it all fit together, Dad? Tell me what you can remember of my grandfather who died when I was a month old. Tell me about your great-grandfather. Tell me the history of the Forsyths. It's becoming more and more important to me. Well, the history of Israel, I hope it becomes important to you. Because it is your history in a sense. It is your history. The Christian faith sprung from the bosom of Judaism. Their history is, to some degree, our history too. So let's work through this. I hope I don't get lost here. If I do, this becomes a three-part sermon. Okay, i just tell you that. But let's look at a few dates. You could pencil these dates down if you like. I tried to restrain myself and to give you only dates that are that are important dates, critical dates, dates that you ought to have at least a vague working understanding of. Some of them you just flat out ought to memorize, so I'll just tell you that, okay? But it begins, at least for this morning, it begins in 931 B.C., almost 3,000 years ago, 931 B.C. The reason 931 is an important date, it is the date of the division of the kingdom of Israel. Solomon dies and his foolish son is unable to hang on to the kingdom. And so it is divided. It is divided into the 12 tribes. Ten secede from the union, as it were, and the northern tribes known as Israel and then later Ephraim, the Old Testament and in the prophets, and the southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin who become known as the southern kingdom or Judah. 931, the division of the kingdom, that which had such opportunity and future is severed, 931. 722 is the next date that you ought to put into your thinking. 722, it is the date of what's called the Assyrian captivity. 722, the Assyrian captivity. This is the date that, it, that the northern ten tribes were swept away in judgment. They were taken away in judgment 
by the Assyrians, who were the world power at that time. Second Kings chapter 17 details the sweeping away of the northern kingdom in the Assyrian captivity. This, by the way, was also a warning to the southern kingdom, to the kingdom of Judah, to the house of David, that judgment would fall on them too if they did not repent of their sin, return to the Lord their God. And yet they did not heed him. And so we have a series of three dates, 605, 597, and 586. 605, 597, 586. These represent the destruction of that southern kingdom, the Davidic kingdom. It happened in three ways, 605. The first, this is commonly called the Babylonian captivity. In 605, Daniel, the prophet, was taken away to Babylon, 605. Later, 597, Nebuchadnezzar returned again because the nation of Israel was in rebellion against him. They were not paying the tribute that he had laid upon them. And so he took away Ezekiel and 20,000 captives in 597. And he changed the king, put one of his own choosing on the throne, laid further tribute upon the nation, and left. It wasn't long before the nation again rebelled, refused to pay tribute, and Nebuchadnezzar returned. And after almost a two-year siege in 586, they penetrated the walls of Jerusalem, threw into the Temple Mount, and the city was destroyed, 586, including the temple. Solomon's great temple was leveled, was leveled. 539 would be the next date you would want to be aware of. In 539, the Medes and the Persians, a rising empire of that time, conquered the empire of Babylon. So the Medo-Persian empire now rises and dominates what's known as the world from the biblical perspective, and that is the the world of the Middle East. The Medo-Persian empire, it's detailed for us in Daniel chapter 5. So the Babylonian Empire followed by the Medo-Persian Empire in 539. In 538, the king Cyrus issues a proclamation or a decree, and that is that the Jews can return to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple. They can return and rebuild their temple. This was foretold by the prophet Isaiah 175 years before Cyrus even came on the scene. Cyrus issues this great decree in 538. You can read about it in 2 Chronicles 36, Ezra chapter 1. In 536, 536, they begin work on what is known as the Second Temple. Second Temple, it's also known as the Temple of Zerubbabel. Second Temple, it began in 536. It was completed in 516 after several work stoppages. You can read all about that in the first six chapters of Ezra, as well as in the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. They deal with the rebuilding of the second temple. The second temple was small. It was modest. It was nowhere near the glory of Solomon's great temple. It's important to know the second temple because later Herod the Great, who we will introduce a little later in this text, rebuilt and expanded that temple until it became greater and grander than Solomon's first temple. 
By the way, if you read secular history books, we are still in what is known as Second Temple Judaism. Second Temple Judaism. There will be a third temple, one more to come. It is Ezekiel's temple, and it is the Millennial Temple. But right now, Second Temple. Date, 433. This is all B.C., 433. Malachi is written, last book of the Old Testament, last prophet to write, Malachi in 433. And Malachi writes in order to condemn and warn the spiritually cold returnees from the Babylonian captivity. How sad this is. Less than a hundred years after they began their return, they have grown so cold that God sends the prophet Malachi to chastise them in their unbelief. And the Old Testament closes. The Old Testament closes. God becomes silent. And so for 400 years, there is no prophet of God. There is no voice from God. God is still ruling and controlling in his providence, and we'll look at this in a minute. But as far as a speaking prophet of God, Malachi is it, it closes. The next speaking prophet of God is John the Baptist, in which Matthew presents him in the very early pages of his gospel. So we are in what's called the silent years. These silent years are broken down quickly for us in 331 to 323. We have the rise of the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, it's detailed for us in Daniel chapter 8. Daniel 8, the reign of Alexander the Great, the boy king, who lightning with lightning speed conquered the Medo-Persian Empire, which had conquered the Babylonian Empire and extended Greek culture and learning and art and language across the known world. Alexander died at age 30. When he died, his empire was divided among four generals. His empire was carved up among four generals, only two of whom do we care about, at least biblically so. Four generals, two of whom are concerned to us. The first was Ptolemy. His name was Ptolemy, and he founded a dynasty known as the the Ptolemies of Egypt. They ruled from 301 to 198 B.C. over Israel. Ptolemies of Israel, they controlled Israel, Daniel 11, from 301 to 198. They allowed a pretty pretty fair measure of religious freedom and autonomy for the Jews. It was during all of that time, their empire, by the way, was headquartered there in Egypt. It was during their reign that the Septuagint was was, uh, translated. That is, the Greek translation of the Old Testament was made in Egypt under the auspices and reign of the Ptolemies. In 198, at the end of a, of a battle, one of the other empires called the Seleucids, who descended from a, one of those four generals, Seleucus, whose empire was headquartered in Syria, defeated the Ptolemies and took control of Israel. So the control of Israel passed in 198 to the Seleucids. Again, you can read about it in Daniel 11. The Seleucids were far less favorably inclined towards the Jews. They persecuted them. 
And that empire had, had tremendous need of money, the Seleucid Empire, because it was bumping against Rome and having to pay tribute to Rome. And so they were always looking for money and taxation, and they figured out that if they could sell the high priesthood to the highest bidder, they could raise money, and so they did that. The high priesthood now became available for sale under the Seleucids. They had no interest in Judaism They wanted to spread Greek culture and language, and they wanted to crush Judaism, and they attempted to do so. Their control over Israel went from 198 to 168, so about 30 brutal years. In 168, we enter into what's known as the Maccabean period. The Maccabean period, also known as the Hasmonean dynasty. Hasmonean or Hasmonius was was a family name. The Maccabean period. This arose because they were trying to force what was called the Hellenization or the the adoption of Greek language and culture among the Jewish people. And an ancient priest and his five sons, one of whom was named Judas Maccabeus. That's where you get the name Maccabeans. Maccabeus means hammer. So Judas the hammer. They refused to bend the knee and they launched a guerrilla war and... Over a period of time, they actually defeated the Seleucids and gained a measure of independence for the land of Israel. We enter now the Maccabean period or the Hasmonean dynasty. It lasted from 168 to 63 B.C. for about 100 years. So for about 100 years, Israel was quasi-independent under rulers drawn from the lineage of the Hasmoneans. They combined the office of priest and king together, and they had a priest-king on the throne. Well, they were formed in opposition to Greek culture, to Hellenization, but it wasn't long before they began to adopt it themselves. And then there were disputes within the family about who could be high priest. And eventually, two brothers appealed to Rome to help decide the issue. And Rome was only all too happy to insert herself into this part of the world. She wanted this part of the world. She had been bumping up against this part of the world for quite some time. And so when they appealed to Rome to come in and to arbitrate between the two feuding brothers as to who was the true high priest, Rome was only too glad to comply. And so in 63 B.C., under the general Pompey, Rome conquered Jerusalem and established the high priesthood in favor of one of the brothers. So Rome, now the fourth empire, controls this part of the world, beginning in 63 B.C. The last date I have for you is is A.D. 70. You just ought to know that date because A.D. 70 is the date when the city of Jerusalem and the temple is destroyed by the Roman armies under Titus. And thus ends the Jewish occupation of the land for the next 2,000 years, really until 1948. So with that quick background for you, you understand where we are when we arrive here in Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and let me read the text for you. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, 
Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard it, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the child, and when you have found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. Liar. And having heard the king, they went on their way. And lo, the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they came into the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. And, And opening their treasuries, they brought to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country by another way. Hostility. The second of the three great responses. Homage or worship was the response of the Magi. Herod's response is one of hostility. And of course, you're familiar enough with this account to know that later in the chapter, Herod sends and kills all the children ages two and under in an attempt to try to kill the child. But let's pick it up here in verse 3. When Herod the king heard, he was troubled, it says, and all Jerusalem with him. Now, the Magi didn't go directly to Herod to ask the question of where the king of the Jews was. Where was this one born king of the Jews? They were asking all over the city of Jerusalem, the text indicates. But finally, Herod gets wind of it. He had an extensive spy network, so it probably didn't take very long for him to figure it out. But Matthew says that when he knew what the mission of the Magi, these Persian kingmakers, were was when he found out, when he discerned what it was they wanted, he was troubled by it all. And it says further in verse 3 that so was Jerusalem. Herod was troubled and so was Jerusalem. The word troubled here, by the way, the verb troubled, is a very interesting verb. It, It carries the idea of agitated. He was agitated, or he was stirred up, or he was even frightened. In fact, it's used over in Matthew chapter 14 and verse 26 to speak of the disciples and their response to Jesus when they see him walking on the water and they thought he was a ghost. They were agitated. They were frightened. They were stirred up. They were troubled. So Herod is kind of undone by the questioning that's going on. He is a very agitated man. Now, obviously, if you're, if you're the king, and that's what it says, verse 1, right? The days of Herod the king. If you're the king and these kingmakers show up in your capital city and they're sort of asking around to people saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? And you know that you weren't born king of the Jews. That would probably upset you a little. It might unnerve you a little bit. So that's somewhat understandable, but... 
But it's interesting, Matthew says that that Jerusalem is agitated too. That the, that the city is stirred up. The city is troubled. The city is frightened. The city is frightened. Now that is interesting to me. Why would the city be frightened? I understand why the king might feel threatened. But why would the city feel frightened? And I think the answer lies in knowing something about Herod the Great. When you know about this man's character, it's easy to understand why, if you were a resident living in Jerusalem and the surrounding area, that you would be pretty stirred up as well. So let's take a peek at Herod the Great. Herod the Great, born in 74 B.C., died in 4 B.C. I think I have a picture for you there. Yeah, there we go. Good. Picture of Herod the Great. It's not a photograph. Well, that's a photograph, but you know what I'm saying. Herod the Great. Now, Herod was an Idomean by birth. An Idomean. That means that he came from the land of Edom. The land of Edom is in the southeast of Israel, so he is not a Jew. He is an Edomean. He is broadly Jewish by ancestral background. And the reason that's true is because under the Hasmonean kingdom, under the reign of the Maccabees, they, one of the priest kings conquered Edom and there was a forced conversion of all the Edomites, all the Edomians to adopt Judaism. So he was a Gentile who at the point of a sword, his ancestors adopted Judaism. So he's not a real Jew. He's not of the Davidic line. Thus, he cannot be king of the Jews. He is not legitimate. He's an illegitimate king in both the eyes of the people and in the eyes of God. Bible commentator William Hendrickson characterizes or describes Herod with three words, and I think they're pretty good, so giving due credit, I'm going to use them. He says Herod could be characterized by these three words. Number one, he was capable. He was a capable ruler. He was appointed magistrate or prefect of Galilee by Julius Caesar. You remember him, right? Shakespeare wrote about him. Julius Caesar in 47 BC made Herod the magistrate of Galilee. And the reason he did so was because Herod was very successful in quelling Jewish uh, guerrilla bands that were, that were rising up against Roman rule at that time. So he proved himself capable in suppressing these outlaw bands. In 40 B.C., Herod was forced to flee to Rome because Palestine was invaded by the Parthians. Now, the Parthians are what's left over the remnant of the Medo-Persian Empire that was conquered by Greece and that was conquered by Rome. When one empire is conquered by another, it just doesn't evaporate. It's still there. It still hangs around. And so this was what was left of the Medo-Persian Empire from the east, primarily the lands of Iraq and Iran, and it was known as the Parthian Empire. And so in 40 B.C., the Parthians invaded Jerusalem, And they installed a Hasmonean descendant upon the throne of Israel. At that point, Herod took off. I think I have a map for you here just so you can get a peek. Indeed, I do. 
So to the left in green is the Roman Empire at that time. To the right in kind of a gray is what's called the Parthian Empire. You can see where the two empires rub against each other happens to be the land of, you guessed it, Israel. And so it was an area of constant turmoil and conflict. So Herod has to leave. He has to run away because the Parthians have come in and they've installed this Hasmonean descendant back onto the throne. And the reason they did that is because he was a puppet for them. They could control him. Parthians were still contending against Rome at this time. It wasn't until I believe it's 117 AD that Rome finally crushes the Parthian Empire. Now, while in Rome, Herod convinces Mark Anthony and Octavian, who the Bible calls Caesar Augustus, who were sharing the, the throne of Rome, if I can say that, that way, the leadership of Rome, he convinces them to name him the king of the Jews. And, they, and, to, and to raise an army. And so he does that. They name him king of the Jews. It's blessed by the Roman Senate. He goes out and he raises himself an army. He returns to Palestine. And he drives out the Parthians after several years of fighting. So in 37 BC, Herod drives the Parthians back out of Israel. And he now, having named, been named by Rome, king of the Jews, takes his seat in the capital city. Now, as a ruler, he was brilliant. He was brilliant. Once, for instance, there was, a, there was starvation going on, and so he, he melted down some of the gold plates of the palace in order to turn it into coinage, in order to buy food, in order to feed the starving masses. So he was a brilliant leader. He knew when the right time to tax and the right time to back off. Something our government has yet to learn. Oh, I didn't say that, did I? Anyway. Herod was also a master builder. He had a ferocious appetite to leave something for his namesake. And so he built all over the place. Excuse me. And among his famous works is the nearly impregnable fortress of Masada. I think I've got a picture for you there. That's good. Masada was built there up on that plateau and it was built by Herod and it was built as a place to escape to in case the Parthians came back. He could hold out there for an incredibly long period of time. He also built a castle in the beautiful port city of Caesarea. So there, that little rocky outcropping, you can see some temple or some ruins there just to the right of the photograph. That's where his His palace was built, so that was oceanfront property with a swimming pool and a natural harbor, and it was absolutely gorgeous. Caesarea, which is near, by the way, modern-day Haifa. Gorgeous place. Third, he's known for the building and expansion of the temple, the second temple. It was known as the Herod's Temple, the temple there in Jerusalem. That's a model of it. And you can see that doesn't do justice to the entire size of the complex, but it's the basic temple area. And you can see how glorious it is. So Herod was a master builder. He was capable. Secondly, Herod was crafty. 
Herod was crafty. His second wife was an heiress of the Hasmonean family, and he married her in order to try to make himself more acceptable to the Jews. He's an Edomian. He wants to, he's been named by Rome king of the Jews. He wants the Jewish people to accept him as such. And so he marries a, a Jewish girl from the Hasmonean family, and he hopes that that will cement his acceptance with the populace, but it doesn't. Herod also shows himself crafty in that when his, his patron, Mark Antony, along with Cleopatra, had a falling out with Octavian and was defeated by them at what's known as the Battle of Actium. And you don't need to remember any of this, but just kind of think about this. You know, Antony and Cleopatra, they're fighting Octavian. And Herod is on the side of Mark Antony. And he ends up on the losing side. Octavian defeats Mark Antony and Cleopatra at the Battle of Actium. Antony and Cleopatra later commit suicide. And Herod has got a problem. And that is, he's now on the losing side. And in that day and age, to be on the losing side of that kind of a power struggle usually meant one didn't live very long. So Herod took his hat in his hand and he went to Octavian to convince him that he would be loyal to him. That he would be just as loyal and just as productive a friend to Octavian, to Caesar Augustus, as he had been to Mark Antony. That is that he would bring the taxes in on time and that he would suppress rebellion on the eastern edge of the empire. Recognizing Herod's ability and how he successfully kept peace in his empire, in fact, he's about the only one who could ever rule the Jews with any kind of of, um, keeping things under control, that Caesar Augustus reconfirmed him as king of the Jews. So he's capable, he's crafty, And he's cruel. He is cruel, and that's the third characteristic. The older he got, the more cruel he became. The man was insane, and he was jealous. He was insane, and he was jealous, and he was suspicious. He executed his second wife, the one he married, in order to ingratiate him with the populace. He became convinced that she was plotting against him. He had her executed. He later executed three of his sons, all of whom at one time or another had been in the will to be next in line. But he heard rumors that they were plotting against him, and he had them executed. Caesar Augustus is said to have remarked about Herod that he would rather be Herod's pig than his son. He'd rather be his pig his, than his son. And, and the reason he said that, and there's a, in, in, uh, in Greek, there's a play on words. The two words sound alike. But the idea is Herod, being a convert to the Jewish religion, would never kill a pig because he couldn't eat it. But he would kill his sons. So Augustus said, I'd rather be his pig than his son. Shortly before his death in 4 B.C., Herod ordered that all the leading citizens of Jerusalem be arrested and confined. The reason he said that is he said, when I die, nobody will mourn for me. But I want to make sure there will be mourning upon my death. So when I die, execute them all. And there will be great mourning. Fortunately, according to the providence of God, he did die and that order was not carried out. So that's the kind of man 
you're dealing with. So back to Matthew. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard it, he was agitated and all Jerusalem was agitated too. And you can understand now why that would be. There was no brutal act that this man would be incapable of doing in order to protect the throne that he had carved out over a long period of time. So the citizens are very agitated. They, they know the murderous jealousy of this man, Herod. Now Herod needs to find out where this, this king of the Jews is, where this person who's threatening his throne is. And so he needs a plot. He needs a plan So he forms one here in verse 4, doesn't he? He gathers together the chief priests and scribes of the people, and he begins to inquire repeatedly of them where the Messiah was to be born. He wants to kill the child, but he wants to know where to go to kill him. That takes us to the third response to Herod, which I'm calling indifference. Indifference. We have homage in the Magi. We have hostility in Herod. We now have what I'm calling indifference. Indifference among the leadership of the nation of Israel. Verse 4, And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. Again, a little historical background. I'm sorry. No, I'm not sorry at all, actually. I'm not even the slightest bit sorry. I don't even know why I said that. (laughs) You need to know this. Again, you are introduced to players that are very significant. You may have a great working knowledge of them or you may have no knowledge at all. But after this morning, you will have some knowledge. The nation of Israel is, is ruled religiously at this time, and this is through the Gospels. It is ruled religiously by a group of men a group of men. They form a ruling council. Seventy of them form this ruling council, and it's called the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of Israel. It is comprised of of men drawn from three different segments of society. The first are what is known as the Sadducees. The next are the Pharisees, and the third are the elders. So there are Sadducees, Pharisees, and elders. Together, representatives of these three groups of individuals from society, 70 of them form the Sanhedrin or the ruling council, and it is presided over by the high priest, who is the president, if you will, of the Sanhedrin. That's the, that's the ruling structure. They oversaw all of the religious activity of the nation and under Rome had varying levels of civil authority as well. They had their own police force called the temple police. Now the Sadducees here in in, in verse 4 go by other names as well. Matthew calls them the chief priests. You see at verse 4, gathered together the chief priests. These are the Sadducees. They are the spiritual aristocracy of Judaism. This is the upper crust. They are drawn from the families of the current and former high priests. They're an interesting lot. They accept only the first five books of Moses. So Genesis through Deuteronomy as authoritative. So they only accept the Pentateuch as authoritative. They deny things like the providence of God, resurrection, 
life after death, the existence of angels and demons, and eternal rewards and punishment. They were materialists, if I could say it that way. We would call them modern theological liberals. These are the Sadducees. They control the temple. That's their domain. They have control over the temple, and they embrace Greek culture. They are very unpopular among the majority of the Jewish people. And the reason is, is because when the people come to make the required sacrifices, the Sadducees control the temple, and they control all of the exchange booths at the temple, and they rip the people off when they come to exchange coinage or sacrificial animals. So they are very powerful and very wealthy, the Sadducees, known here as the chief priests. The second group I told you about are the Pharisees. The Pharisees. The word Pharisee means separated one. The Pharisees arose early in the Maccabean period. That's why you don't find them in the Old Testament. They don't exist. They spring up during the end of the Maccabean period. And they, they're the, called the separated ones because they separated themselves from all Greek culture and thought. They're theologically conservative. They view the entire Old Testament as authoritative. However, they also, and this is key, they also accept oral tradition as being equally authoritative as the written word of God. So it is the entire Genesis to Malachi that they accept as the authoritative word of God plus on equal footing oral tradition. That is the, the interpretations and teachings of previous Pharisees. And they put them on equal footing. To a Pharisee, to study the law was to truly worship God. So they gave themselves to the study of the Word of God. They believed in the supernatural, but they taught that the way to God was through law-keeping. It was through keeping the law. They're very, very popular with the people, and they are the dominant force that controls the synagogues. So there's the temple in Jerusalem out in the surrounding areas, including the, what's called the diaspora or the, or the Jews that are spread out all over the Gentile world. There are synagogues, the Pharisees. That's their domain. They control the synagogues. Now, a subset of the Pharisees are known as the scribes. You see them here in verse 4. Gathering together the chief priests and the scribes. Not all Pharisees are scribes, but virtually all scribes were Pharisees. They are experts. Sometimes they're called lawyers in the New Testament. Okay? And they are itinerant teachers. They are itinerant teachers. They go around teaching. And they accumulate disciples to themselves. And, and people contribute financially to support them. They give themselves to the study of the Scriptures. And they are also responsible for creating, maintaining, and passing on the oral traditions which came to form what's known as Pharisaical Judaism. Now, that is very, very important because Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, is going to slap them in the face. He's going to punch them in the mouth. He's going to go directly at them in the Sermon on the Mount. The third group is called the elders. They don't appear here in Matthew's account early on. Later, they do. Matthew 21, 23, they're called the elders of the people. They're a very small group. They're made up of wealthy men, wealthy and prominent businessmen who have made their money by throwing in with whatever prevailing Gentile power there is. So they represent the, the landed gentry, if I can say it that way, of Palestine, the elders of the people. 
So you have Sadducees, you have Pharisees, you have the elders. Together, representatives from them make up the Sanhedrin. Now, the question you ask yourself is, is how could three groups of people that really don't have a whole lot in common and view things so differently, how could they possibly get along to rule the nation and oversee its religious life? It's a great question. The answer to the question lies in understanding of what makes a person a Jew in the first century. So I asked that question. What made you a Jew in the first century? You need to know this. You need to know this. What made one a Jew? There are four things that make you a Jew. Number one, circumcision. You had to be circumcised. That separated you from the Gentiles. So you had to be circumcised. Number two, you had to keep the Sabbath. You had to be circumcised. You had to keep the Sabbath. Number three, you had to participate in common prayers. That is 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. So circumcision, Sabbath-keeping, Common prayers. Fourth, to be a Jew, you had to make a a trip once in a lifetime to Jerusalem to participate in one of the three mandated feasts. If you were characterized by these four things, circumcision, Sabbath-keeping, common prayers, and and a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, then you were a Jew. It's common practice, not common doctrine, that makes you a Jew. It's what you do rather than what you believe that sets you apart from the Gentiles. And that's how these these groups could get along together. Because it wasn't about how you believed. It was about the externals of how you conducted your life. Common practice, not common doctrine. So Herod Gerardes, chief priests and scribes, that is, representatives of the Sanhedrin, verse 4, he gets them together. He asks them where the Messiah is to be born. Verse 5, they answer him. In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. I think it's insightful that Herod himself has no idea. Because Herod was a Jew by forced conversion. Circumcision, Sabbath-keeping, common prayer, pilgrimage. He doesn't know the Word of God, could care less about the Word of God. He doesn't know, so he, he gathers them together, and he puts the question to them, where will the king be born? And they spit it right out, don't they? Verse 6. Isn't that fascinating? Bang! Micah 5.2. We know that prophecy. You probably know it too because it's on Christmas cards. They just come right up with it. What's fascinating to me is not a one of them goes to check it out. They don't investigate. They don't make the trip. How far is, is Bethlehem from Jerusalem? Five miles. I mean, it's, a, it's just next door. They don't go. They don't look. They don't confirm. This is the Messiah. This is, this is the King of the Jews. This is the one long foretold by the prophets. I know exactly where it will be born. Get down here to the big tree. Take a left. You know. Follow the road. Hope you find him. 
Incredible. They rattle the prophecy off just like that, and not one of them will go and look. Remember the shepherds? Angels appear to the shepherds, right, in the night sky? Tell them there's, there's been a great event has happened. And they say, we got to go see this thing. They draw straws, I think, to see who gets left behind to watch the sheep. And the rest of them scurry off to see. The religious leadership of Jerusalem, of Judaism, steeped in the scriptures, know the word of God intimately, can tell you exactly where the king will be born and will not take the time to go and see themselves. Indifferent. They are absolutely indifferent. John says that Jesus, John 1.11, he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. They could care less about him. No clearer example of that statement can be produced than the, the indifference in the hearts and minds of the leadership of the nation of Israel. By the way, Matthew is setting us up for the balance of his gospel here. They don't care when he's born. They could care less when his ministry begins until he punches them in the mouth, figuratively speaking. And then the indifference hardens into hostility until by the end of Matthew's gospel, what are they doing? They're crying, crucify him. Kill him. We have no king but Caesar. Matthew 15, 8. Jesus said to them, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They go through the motions. They keep the rituals. They do all the external things that's supposed to happen. Both the theological liberals and the theological conservatives. Both those that deny the supernatural and those that embrace the supernatural. Both those that deny the majority of the Word of God and those that embrace the Word of God. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. I think about that. I can't help but think about us. We have the Word of God. We embrace the Word of God, right? Genesis all the way to Revelation. We know the Scriptures. And yet... And yet, in, in my heart, and I know in yours, there are, there are times when we are gripped by indifference. Indifference. Maybe that's how you came in here this morning. Gripped with indifference. I mean, you're here because it's the right thing to do. It's Sunday morning. It's, it starts at 10.30. It's your tradition. It's, it's not negotiable for you. And that's, that's good. That's commendable. 
So you get up on Sunday morning and you put on your clothes and you stick your big fat Bible under your arm with all the MacArthur study notes in it, you know, and, and you come. But you've left your heart somewhere else. Your heart's still home or your mind's on tomorrow's business. You're indifferent. You sing the songs, you put something in the plate, you bow your head appropriately when we pray, you listen attentively, or at least your eyeballs appear to be listening attentively during the preaching, yet your heart is cold. Maybe somebody here is hostile. I'm assuming they would have walked out by now. A couple of people have walked out, but I think they all have legitimate reasons. I've been watching who they are, and I think I, you know, I know who they all are, so I think they're okay. Maybe, one, maybe somebody's sitting here, though, you know, you're burning on the inside. You're really hostile about this whole Jesus thing. Do you, know, do you ever notice that? Like, there's no way quicker to ruin a family dinner than to bring up Jesus. Do you ever notice that? I mean, you can talk about anything. You can talk about God. You can talk about being spiritual. You can talk about praying. You can talk about the Bible. You just can't talk about that man. People want no part of it. Then there's the Magi, of course, who travel great distance at considerable expense and difficulty in order to come and to fall at the feet of the Messiah to worship. And that's where I'd like to be. I know... You'd like to be there too. But I think we should not be too quick to just say, yeah, I'm with the Magi. And shame on all those others. I think we ought to be honest with ourselves. Probably not hostile. But way too often indifferent. Way too often. May the Spirit of God probe your heart this morning. Where are you in this narrative right now? Where are you? Where would God have you be? Call out to Him to change you, to take you where you need to be. Maybe you don't know Him at all this morning. Not in a saving way. then you need to know Christ. You need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to, to believe that He came and that He lived and that He died and that He did it for you. Because your sin is a, is a stench in the nostrils of God. You are cut off from fellowship with your Creator. Nothing you can do, nothing you can give, the prophet says, what shall I give for the sin of my soul? Shall I give the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What gift can I give to a holy God? My friends, nothing. God has already done it all in Christ. He is the final sacrifice. Believe on Him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. I would love to talk with you more after service if if God is moving in your heart this morning and when everyone's milling around, you come on down here and we'll talk. Let's pray.
Father, this account from Matthew, he, he gives us three rather dramatic responses to the birth of Christ. Our Father, you sent your Son into the world. Jesus is his name. You, you told Joseph, name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And the Gentiles, they came to worship. The political authorities and leaders of that day, they were hostile and sought to kill him in order that, that they could cling to their own temporal power and perquisites. But Father, probably most dramatic of all, the, the spiritual leadership of Israel turned their back. They could quote the Bible, but couldn't care less what it meant. There was nothing in their hearts. Their hearts were cold. Heads full of knowledge and hearts full of ice. Oh, God. How many times have we found ourselves that way? Oh, Lord, send forth your spirit to melt the ice, to thaw the heart. To warm our soul for Christ till it burns for his glory. O oh God our Father, glorify yourself through us today. We pray in Jesus' name.